0: Welcome to the Compliance 4 Radio Show. We're dedicated to helping you connect with the greatest minds in the regulatory, legal, and compliance fields. Here's your host, Elizabeth Hamilton-Guarino. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our inaugural radio show for Compliance 4. And I'd like to bring on my first guest, our brave first guest we have with us, Norm Champ. Norm, thank you for being with me today. I appreciate your time and energy and being here on the very first show.
1: Excellent. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So let me tell everybody a little bit about you. Um, Since we're Internet Radio, I usually direct people to websites first. And so Norm is the author of Going Public, so you can visit goingpublicthebook.com. He also has a website, normchamp.com. There are others um, with Kirkland and Ellis and so forth, but... um, Let me just tell you a little bit about Norm. Norm Champ joined Kirkland Kirkland and Ellis in the Investment Funds Group as a partner in February 2016. Mr. Champ is a former director of the Division of Investment Management at the SEC. Under his leadership, the SEC adopted a new rule in July 2014 to reform money market mutual funds. Mr. Champ's book titled Going Public, My Adventures Inside the SEC and How to Prevent the Next Devastating Crisis, Chronicles his experiences at the agency and how they shed light on the regulatory process and government policymaking. Mr. Champ is also a lecturer on investment management at Harvard Law School. Really cool. He began teaching in the fall of 2015, having just completed a term as a visiting scholar. He's researching and writing on the reg- regulatory response to the financial crisis um, while you were doing that. And um, you were you – while were, well, at the SEC, you were the director of Investment Management. And um, prior to that, you were the Deputy Director of the SEC's OC, or Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations, and the Associate Regional Director for Examinations in the SEC's New York Regional Office. I can continue a little bit more, because there's so much many cool things about you. Um, before joining the SEC in 2010, Mr. Champ was the Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Chilton Investment Company, an investment advisor to long-short equity hedge funds and managed accounts. Prior to that, you were with Davis and Polk. Um, I love this, and I'd love to know more about this. You're on the Board of Directors of the School of American Ballet and a board member of trustees of the Spence School, and uh, you're a graduate of Princeton Mr. Champs, a graduate of Princeton University, you have an M.A. in War Studies from King's College, London, where you were a Fulbright Scholar. Uh, you have a law degree, cum laude from Harvard Law School. It's just an absolute joy and pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for being on the show. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. To do. <laughs> so, I th- you know, I thought I would start um, – going back sometimes on my best ever you show i take my guests back so that we have a little bit of history with them and so forth so i wanted to go back first and um to understand how you got to where you are today do you mind telling us like what were you like in second grade or kindergarten or high school or college can you take us back and give us some insight into your life
1: uh sure no problem in uh chapter 2 of the book um going public that you mentioned um uh, which is available on the website you mentioned but also on Amazon um chapter 2 is kind of you know the where you where you traditionally in those kind of books you talk about your story so um you know I've I've kind of recounted uh all of it there I think um You know, I was a very uh, like a guy who really liked to read all the way through. So back in second grade, I had a desk in uh, the classroom piled up with books that I wanted to read, Uh, you know, bought at various used book sales and those kinds of things or library books. So uh, I was always hugely into reading and, um, you know, I've always and still am. So that's sort of been a touchstone. I think that somewhere along the line, kind of in high school, um, I got this idea I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I think it had to do with maybe like F. Lee Bailey writing a big book at that time about all his trials and stuff, although, of course, I did not end up being a litigator. <laughs> but um, yeah. so kind of developed this idea of, of being a lawyer and, and, you know, one thing led to another and, and that is exactly what happened. I, I will say that in college, I got very, you know, this whole reading thing has mostly focused on history. And so in college, I got very interested in history and I seriously thought about going for a PhD in history and maybe being a, a history teacher, you know, a, a college professor or whatever. Um, and that's why I did the master's um, after college. I did a master's in history, in military history in the UK. But I, didn't really relish sort of the employment prospects and academia and kind of the you know that route and um thought that it would might you know might make more sense to go to law school uh, after all so um went to law school and then have been in New York as a corporate lawyer for a long time longer than I'd like to say um and uh, fortunate enough now to be at Kirkon and Ellis where we have a tremendous investment funds practice, and so I get to see really just such a great range of issues uh, impacting investment funds and, and advising funds on those. So great fun. And, uh, you know, that's kind of that's a short version of how I got here. Awesome.
0: Now, I have a signed copy of your book. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> I love this book. <laughs> And um, I, so it's called Going Public. Again, it's available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And it's also on your website, goingpublicthebook.com. It's about your adventures inside the SEC and um, some insight into how you think we should prevent the next devastating crisis. Um, tell, okay, so tell me about how you, or tell us about why you wrote a book. Uh, what, what, how was that decision making process like and, and how you wrote the book, too, because it's pretty candid.
1: Uh, Sure. So, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, as I talk about in the forward or the, I guess, the uh, acknowledgments or whatever in the book, uh, I have been teaching actually at Harvard Law School actually for about 10 years. uh, So since 2008 um, and um, just teaching one class, originally one every other year and now once a year mostly. And so in January of 2014, I was teaching my class, which is about investment management law. And um, I was talking to Martha Minow, who, was at that time the dean of Harvard Law School. She's since stepped down as the dean. But um, And I was telling her a bunch of stories about what it's like to be in government service and like to be inside the SEC post-crisis. Uh, remember that, you know, we, a bunch of us went there immediately after the financial crisis to try to see what reforms we could make to kind of turn the SEC around after the failures of Madoff and Stanford and, and obviously a lot of the broker-dealers that went out of business, Bear Stearns, Lehman, and so forth. And so You know, we came in at a very interesting and challenging time, and we tried to make a lot of change in the government, and change is never easy, particularly in a a place like the government. So I was telling Martha Minow, Dean Minow, some stories about um, being inside the government and what it was like to change things, and she said to me, well, you realize you're going to have to write a book about this, and I sort of laughed and said, I don't think that's really realistic, but – one thing kind of led to another. Started thinking about it, and ultimately, when I left the SEC in, 20, in January of 2015, after five years, um, I rented a one of these co-working office spaces on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and I had a desk. And I started, um, you know, started in on writing it. Turned out there's these other things, like you have to find an agent and a publisher, and you know, there's a lot of steps that go into it. Um, I think that. Mainly, uh, I really felt that the public, and and that's sort of one of the plays of the title, you know, that the public and investors and people in the investment business really had a right to know what it's like uh, inside, you know, the SEC, their main regulator, um, and I think you know, I felt like it was something that would help people as they to understand the SEC and kind of get that out there. So, that was really the main motivation. And uh, you know, it always takes longer than you think, and it's quite a process, let me tell you. Uh, but I am working on my second book, uh, which is going to be called Mastering Money. That is trying to take some of my recommendations near the end of the book about. Improving people's personal finance, you know, balance sheets, per, people's personal balance sheets to resist the next crisis. Uh, and the next book is going to be some practical advice about how to do that. So, um, uh, working on that now. And um, that's uh, that's the story.
0: Well, you know, I, I love that about you that you're you're super conversational in the way you speak and write and so forth. And I and I don't want anybody to be intimidated that you can't pick up. This book or the next one, and not understand it at all. Written from a Harvard level or anything, you know, that kind of thing. And it, it's so conversational and so well written. And there's bits of humor in it, and all sorts of things. So very re- relatable um, and and very interesting. I thought, and thank you for signing it again. And and uh, I I really appreciate that. I've, it's it's treasured, um, and I look forward to your next book too. That that should be very interesting. Now do you have a favorite chapter? Because I kind of have a favorite chapter in here and it's not the Edgar one. It's the lottery bit. <laughs> it's the lottery yep. portion of, of it. Do you, would you go through kind of some of your thoughts on, on the lottery? I know that's, um, yeah, yep, go ahead. That's, I found that's so interesting. Yeah, no,
1: That's one of my, uh, one of my pet peeves, obviously. So, you know, I always joke that the subtitle of the book is a little misleading, right? How to prevent the next devastating crisis. I'll be candid and say that McGraw-Hill really wanted that, that there were prescriptions going forward. And, of course, Chapter 10 contains my ideas of what to do going forward. You know, if you read them, you'll see that they don't really talk about preventing the crisis. So there's a little bit of (laughs) misselling in the subtitle. What they really say is that the important thing for Americans uh, is to – Think about their own financial health and think about their own balance sheet, because that's the best protection against the next crisis is to have a healthy balance sheet. And so we have a number of phenomena in the United States right now, right? Savings rate is at a historic low. Um, we have record debt uh, of personal debt by consumers uh, in America. And we have, you know, you everyone sees these articles, you know, Most 60 percent of Americans say they don't have or a substantial percentage of Americans say they don't have four hundred dollars for a car repair. And, you know, all these stats are telling us that people are overstretched um, and they are, you know, not able to kind of build their own balance sheet. And one, there are many reasons for that. um, But one of the reasons for that is that government uh, in the form, in this case, in the form of state governments, State governments relentlessly promote lottery games um, to U.S. citizens, and they do so to fund their operations. Uh, And unfortunately, that promotion is very attractive to people. And one of the things I talk about in the book that's really most sobering to me is that low-income folks in New York City um, spend about 10% of their income on lottery tickets. Uh, And of course, your odds of winning a you know, $300 million jackpot in the lottery are are actually even worse than being hit by lightning. Uh, And so it's a terrible investment. It's a terrible chance. And if you have someone, in fact, spending, you know, $2,000 a year on lottery tickets, that $2,000 a year would be much better spent going into an individual retirement account or 401k plan and being able to grow over time tax-free, one of the few advantages the tax code gives us. Uh, So I am a huge advocate that we should stop advertising the lottery publicly, Um, you know, because people always say to me, well, if you outlaw the lottery, organized crime will take it over, which was one of the original rationales for the lottery. Um, Fine, then let's not advertise it. We don't allow cigarettes to be advertised, uh, and lottery is just as devastating or worse. Uh, So I would like to prevent advertising of the lottery. If we can't go there, uh, the other Terrible fact is that the lottery is exempt from the Truth in Advertising Act a federal law um, and we should at least make sure it has truth in advertising. So we are um, really robbing, you know, a set of our citizenry um, that is unable to afford uh, the lottery that they're playing. And it is the most regressive tax that we have in America, right? It is taken primarily from people who cannot afford it. Uh, and we generally, in the United States, favor a progressive tax system. The lottery is a regressive tax system, right? So if someone with, you know, means buys an occasional ticket when the lottery is at $400 it doesn't matter. But if someone who's low income buys 10% of their income uh, with, you know, on lottery tickets, that could, prevent them from buying food or paying the rent. So uh, it's, uh, it, it's really a shame. Um, and I would like to see, and part of the new book will be expanding on this, uh, and in conjunction with that, I'm also starting a foundation to advocate for these same issues, to you know, to advocate that we change some of these things around the lottery. So it's certainly something I feel passionate about and something that I think would really improve the of, lives of everyday citizens.
0: What made you um, think about that in the first place?
1: Well, it's just one example, right? So it's a very obvious example of how we don't encourage, right? So 50 years ago, if you went to the post office, you could open a postal savings account and save money. That's still true in Japan. Um, people may be familiar with the Japan Post Bank. You know, that's an actual bank in Japan. Um, in the United States, until about I think 45, 40 some odd years ago, you could open a savings account at the post office, which you know people would visit the post office, put in deposits, and you know they would grow uh, in savings accounts. We've, of course, gotten rid of that and gotten rid of many, many other incentives to save. Uh, and we basically pursue a consumer society and we urge people the exact opposite, right? We we urge people to spend. That is across everything, cars, furniture, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly getting people to spend. Housing. I talk a lot about housing in Chapter 10. The lottery is just a, an example. It's probably the most egregious example because it's sponsored by the government, right? So. You know, people selling you cars at least are private actors, um, and you can decide not whether or not to to buy them. Uh, the government sponsors the lottery and promotes it shamelessly and spends billions advertising it. Uh, and I just don't think that the government, in this case, state governments, should be urging people to waste their money on the lottery as opposed to savings. Uh, so it's an example of really the change in this country from saving to spending, and of course that spending. Has um, caused um, all of the, uh, you know, is part of the reason we have such a huge rise in personal debt, in individual debt.
0: Yeah. Um okay so in in the book also I'm um, just going to keep on the book for just a little bit here uh, I could talk take the whole show and talk about the book, about the, book. the book's awesome um but uh, you talk about um pretty candidly about some of the practices I- at the SCC while you were there that were troubling and the, and some of the things that you fixed and all that stuff but the one thing that really that really struck me was that you have a a pretty good admiration for a lot of the employees there um I, I see that you've, you know you've hired Kirkland and Ellis hired some and so forth. Are the people that you worked with when you were there still there? Have they moved on? Or you know, I don't I don't know if that's a if that's a too prying of a question. I was just really curious. Like, um, for some reason, it just struck me that you really c- care about people a lot.
1: No question. Um, you know, I I I do think I connect. You know, with with folks, and I and I really enjoy you know working with many many people at the SEC. And I think maybe what It has to do with is I'm a big believer in bad systems, not bad people. So all of us operate in a system of one way or the other, work, school, you know, home, whatever it is. Um, And unfortunately, there are some systemic elements within the commission that have rewarded the wrong behavior. Right. So, um, you know, it's a place where no one can be fired. Right. So if you can't be fired, um, you know, if you have lifetime employment, that can lead to the wrong incentives, right, Serve some people maybe not to work as hard and so forth. And so I'm what we really focused on was trying to change the system there because the people mostly go there because they want to serve our country and they're interested in markets or they have some background in securities or something. And so they really want to be there. They want to serve our country. They want to make our markets, the, continue to have our markets be the greatest in the world. And so... I really mostly focused on trying to reform the systems at the Commission that were causing a lot of the problems that the Commission encountered before and during the financial crisis um, and very much enjoyed working with the people, as you say, and yep, we've hired at, at Kirkland about six folks that I worked with um, at the Commission in different roles uh, and built out our funds regulatory practice to, you know, advise clients on issues around Regulatory issues around funds, and you know there's plenty of people I worked with who are still there. I was emailing with one of them yesterday. Uh, you know, so lots of folks still there as well uh, still, and I always thank them for remaining at the ramparts and you know um, uh, protecting investors and and it's a great service they do and I hope that some of the system changes we made um, help them do better, help them do their jobs better, help them serve investors better, help them have better work life satisfaction. I mean, one of the things that doesn't work well in a bad system is if people are not rewarded for doing well, you know, and not, you know, not recognized, that can really hurt morale. So one of the many things we try to do is really recognize the best performers and, and see if we could reward them with, with awards and public recognition. So, um, yeah, I am very focused on the individual, enjoyed very much working with, uh, folks there. And, um, you know, enjoy very much working with folks that we've hired at Kirkland. And uh, uh, so, yep, I'm a huge fan.
0: Yeah. Do you, um, so what are your thoughts on the staff that Chairman Clayton has appointed or selected to help lead the SEC now? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Hugely positive. You know, I think, um, I know, you know, not surprisingly, just having been around (laughs) the securities business a long time, I know, Most of the people uh, that he's appointed, and I think he's done a great job at at bringing in, you know, really talented folks and uh, people with good experience. Um, You know, it's hard to regulate uh, the securities industry without understanding it. And so, yeah, I think he's brought in a lot of great folks with great experience. Um, Very impressed. He's a wonderful guy. Uh, I think you know very much um, they're trying to do the right thing, so um you know i think it's it 's tremendous, and I think they 're off to a really good start you know i think it 's
0: so one of the a, things we have over back on the best ever used side of things, which i 'm going to copy this show and put it over there also is a younger audience, um, people you know ask about career paths and and so forth um, a lot and I was wondering if somebody is listening to this show. And they 're like thinking compliance, financial services the s e c the securities and exchange Commission. what are all these things? Do you have a spot um, other than direct dialing you <laughs> where you would recommend um, people go to learn more about all of this? I know that kind of catches you off guard a little bit maybe i don't know no, no. but um no no yeah, yeah
1: no it's no it's okay. no it's great um well so i i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to be too shameless but if you read um if you read chapter 2 of the book you know in addition to kind of talking about life story um it also you know it does describe the fund industry and and talks about what how you know what are funds and and kind of tries to lay it out as as you you know Someone kindly said, I mean, I think it really we try to lay it out in a, in a way that is very straightforward and, you know, is accessible. And we've gotten some wonderful reviews saying, you know, that it is accessible. So it, you know, so chapter two of the book really tries to do that, lay it out in a in a format that everybody can access. you know, is accessible to everyone. Um, I also think that um, you can look at you know some sources as well you know free sources not having to buy the book um the sec website alone is a tremendous place to learn about what the sec does what it regulates what it doesn't regulate the great pr staff uh a guy named john Nestor at the sec uh spent so much time upgrading the sec's website and they now get i mean the number of hits that the sec website gets is some crazy number i i want to say like 100 million a month or i mean it's just unbelievable and i think that's because there's a ton of material there that you can access to to read about this stuff and understand it and it's intentionally in a way that you know people will be able to access and and understand so i think that's you know that's another great source i have to say i can't the maybe the one other place um i was trying to think of unfortunately like the textbooks and the you know some of the case books and stuff are a little dense, but um maybe one other uh, book I would mention uh which was sort of an inspiration to me to write the book. there's a book by um uh I forget uh his name but the, there's a book called hedgehogging um there was a a book that came out maybe twenty years ago, and it was about a guy starting a he was at Morgan stanley that starting a hedge fund. And that gives you a great sort of insight into what it's like to be in the fund, the private fund business. Um, so that's another one that I feel like great. has a real, you know, uh, flavor of, of what all this really means in in real life. Great. All
0: right. Now, would you ever go back to the SEC? <laughs> uh,
1: you, know, uh, you know, potentially in the right role. I think that I will say that there are, you know, There is a cost of government service, right? I mean, you are um, under the microscope. Uh, One of the things I mentioned in the book, which the whole, obviously, the whole country is seeing now, is this business of starting investigations of each other. You know, like we've got, you know, all these different things in Washington going on. That's true inside the federal agencies as well. So, one of the things I describe in the book are these the, a very common tactic is to write these anonymous notes accusing other people of misconduct, and then that way you try to trigger an investigation of them and so forth. And I had to adjudicate those, investigate those. I had some directed at me, all of which resulted in nothing. But it's a so it's you know, it's not the easiest thing <laughs> when these anonymous notes are flying around. Um, so, I would um, I'm enjoying this time back in the private world and uh it's uh it's been great so i don't think you know in the you know in the immediate time frame but someday i i ha- it is my you know uh really you know kind of my it would it would be my third turn in public service because i also clerked for a federal judge early in my career so uh and that was certainly influential in thinking about going back to public service eventually so i do enjoy it very much and um i would uh I would consider it someday, I'm sure.
0: Awesome. And so one of the things that um, you did while you were there was you come, I, th- I think you did, please correct me if I if I get the question wrong or anything, but I, I, to me it seems like you created a compliance exam manual that sort of implemented continuity and consistency in examinations. And we might have to back up a little bit and explain to the listener what an examination is even. Um, is that still being updated and used and, uh, you know, like with topics like cybersecurity and all these new things that are coming out?
1: yep so um yeah, so just to you know, maybe as you say, just back up one second um you have at the SEC has a number of regulated entities who are in the securities markets of the United States, right so and for certain of those entities, the SEC does not examine and go out and look at their um, firms, so for instance, the public companies in the United States, the regime there is disclosure, and once the SEC is okay with the disclosure has reviewed it, then public companies can sell their shares to anyone they want, right? Um, The regulated entities are the investment managers of the world, so think Fidelity, Vanguard, you know, BlackRock, you know, all the big names. and broker dealers, so think Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, uh, Goldman Sachs, you know those kind of folks, um, and then the National Securities Exchanges, transfer agents, credit rating agencies, a lot of other entities. So the way the SEC deals with the, the way the SEC deals with those entities who are regulated by them and who are participants in the market is that it sends out examiners to check on those firms and see what they're doing. And I, as you mentioned, I was the deputy director of the exam program, which meant supervising examinations across everything that uh, all these entities that are registered with the sec and regulated by them so one of the things which i talk about in the book one of the things that really struck me immediately was that there wasn't a comprehensive manual for the exam program about how we did things so and i'm talking basic things, you know, who reports to who, uh, what's the structure, who's doing what, you know, why are we doing this, what's the goal, right? I mean, just very basic building block kind of stuff. There was no one spot. And, you know, you got the standard answer in organizations that don't have those things, which is, oh, everyone knows how to do it, right? Well, as we all know, that's usually not the case. There had been various emails and things sent around, and and there were modules of how to do certain exams, But there wasn't really just a framework of how we're doing things. So people had different understandings, who was responsible for what. Uh, And so we did put together a manual for the exam program, and ultimately we did it in the investment management division as well, pulling together all of that information, you know, who's who, who reports to whom, who's doing what, how does it all work, um, and i 'll just give you a really quick um, concrete example of what that means and and yes the the manual still exists they do update it um and it's it 's out it 's within the commission. There have been various moves to try to have it go public um, and you know so that everyone could see it um i don 't know you know if that will happen, but it, you know, I would love to see that because I think transparency would be great um, but One very concrete example of what that means um, is take Alan Stanford. Alan Stanford was a terrible Ponzi scheme runner down in Texas. Um, Ultimately, when he was arrested, had stolen around $20 billion. That's billion with a B. 13, uh, 11 years before he was caught, um, the SEC had examined him. Uh, around that time, he had $200 million, so uh, 10% of what he ended up with. And he... Um, when he was examined, examiners believed that, in fact, he was running a Ponzi scheme. And they wrote uh, in a system at the SEC, we believe this guy's running a Ponzi scheme. They were uneven... And this is, again, a uh, 1997. He was caught in 2008. Between the time they caught him, or sorry, between the time of this exam in 97 and when they caught him in 2008, he raised another 19.8 billion dollars and stole it from investors. So early on, they kept, they realized what's going on. Uh, examiners in Texas are unable to get the enforcement division to bring a case about it. He he was claiming he was investing in CDs in Antigua, or somewhere yeah, Antigua I think, and so. There was worry about how to get evidence and so forth, and in the end, the file was closed. Now, you won't be surprised to learn <laughs> that the manual says if you believe someone is committing fraud, you must escalate that. If your local office won't bring a case, then you got to go to national. If you go to national, here's the people you go to and, you know, all the way up the chain, right? So it has an escalation procedure so that if you see fraud – there's a way to make that and if it if a protocol is to go all the way to the top of the agency. So, you know, that was just a simple way to make sure that if someone saw real fraud, they would um they would have a way to call that to the attention of the highest leadership. And we just didn't have that at the time of Stanford. And so unfortunately he went on to steal a lot of money from people. And so um it really Um, that's the purpose of the manual is to give that framework and give people that kind of guidance so that you can prevent those sort of things happening in the future.
0: I agree with you. I think that would be fabulous if that was public. That would be so – that would be cool to see. Um, Again, the the remarkable ability to take something complex and make it so that people can understand it, I, I think that's fabulous about you. <laughs> I just say that's uh, one of the neatest things. Yeah, a great mentor and teacher. Um, well, I, I hope that we have time to talk about what you do at Harvard because you must impact so many lives with things like that. Um, okay, so this next group of questions um, falls under the umbrella of SEC modernization, and I want to make sure again that we don't lose people with terms um, that they don't know, um, especially paying attention to perhaps a younger audience um, and an inexperienced audience. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about what SEC modernization is. What do you think needs to be moder- modernized? Um, g- can maybe go even 10 years out, but in that, um if end port and the liquidity rule and all that stuff can come up, that'd be great too. But um you, yeah, I, think, <laughs> I don't know where I to think, start with that one. Do you, right. do you want to talk? No, no, yeah. Because yeah. I know no, when you arrived, it was like, wow, you look at the laptops yeah. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> the part in the book. So <laughs>
1: yeah. So we. um I, It's funny. I always speak to some of the organizational development people at the commission, you know, that we worked with, and I said, you know, it's funny people say about the book, how can you remember all this stuff, you know, and I and um, and I and the person said well because you walked around here with your eyes wide as saucers you know as, as you watched what was going on um so i would really put it in two buckets right i think that immediate post crisis the mission was to reform, examine enforcement to try to get over the Madoff and Stanford problems. Um, and uh, and so Rob Kazami was the Director of Enforcement, and I was the Deputy Director of Exam. We worked together a lot uh, to to do that, and and you really had to make some just really fundamental reforms. As I mentioned, the manual, we brought in a lot of experts. In the case of enforcement, they formed specialized units to pursue certain types of cases. So you know, there's there. in my view, you kind of have that group of things that were done, and, and those were the post-crisis responses. Now, as we look forward to your point, the question is, you know, what remains to be done? And I think probably when people think of modernization, I think they most likely think of technology at the SEC and the use of data. So one place that has been very difficult for the commission is building up adequate systems, to use the data that they receive in. So, you referenced the reporting modernization project for mutual funds. The idea there was to rep- modernize the forms, uh, you mentioned Nport, on which registrants, regulated entities, report information to the SEC. The reason was, and I'll get this, you gave me a perfect opportunity to use my favorite laugh line uh, the old form on which mutual funds reported information actually operated on a DOS system. And yeah. <laughs> there was literally no way for to use that data, right? Um so NPORD and other modernization efforts are meant to get the information to the SEC in a much more usable format. So that's that's kind of the that's the purpose of that. Now the other thing that's going on is that the SEC, like most government agencies, all of us know from dealing with the D M V or every any anyway, technology is not you know, it just doesn't work as well in the government context. Uh, it's usually built by People in response to these RFPs, you know, and they don't usually use commercially available systems, and, you know, it's just, the technology is clunky. And that's been a problem at the SEC historically. Um, appropriations rise and fall. There's a lot of uncertainty. It's been very hard to kind of get the technology up to speed to deal with the data. So even if you got the data in the right form, getting the tech to deal with the data. And I think as we look forward here, I think that in the age of cyber in the age of SEC's Egger system being hacked last year, I think mostly now people would think of modernization as getting da- better data, getting the data in a better form, perhaps getting less data. You know, something the chair has talked about is, look, if we can't use all this data, maybe we get less and do more, you know, do more with what we get than, than getting a lot and doing less with it. And so I think there you know, has to be a real rethink of what data to collect, what form it comes in. And then can we get the SEC up to speed to be able to use that data to protect investors? And, and I really think that's the critical challenge moving forward.
0: Do you think NPORT and the liquidity rule will be uh, delayed more than what they already are?
1: Uh, You know, it's an interesting question. I think that, um, I believe that in some way, shape or form, NPORT will come to pass. I, I think perhaps maybe there's less things or something, you know, there, but, I don't know if there are that many people who want it just totally, all, you know, gone. Um, it is a lot of data, and there's a cost to that, so that has to be recognized. But I believe there will be some form of of better reporting. Mm. On the, uh, you know, on liquidity, liquidity as a proposal had a lot of problems. I think, you know, as adopted, it was a little bit better, but, you know, Still had some issues, and I'm not sure about liquidity. All
0: right. Do you think it'll ever go final? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it's final, yeah. but do you ever think it'll?
1: Yeah. Uh, I guess you know. Again, I'm just not sure, but I will say one thing. I would say is it's hard to undo a rule. So you know, you saw that the administration was able to use the Congressional Review Act. Now I think 17 or 19 rules right away, and so which is a great thing, right? Just to get because then the Congress can just do it and get rid of them, right? And so that worked well. They did not pick these for that treatment, um, which I believe reflects the idea that folks generally think maybe we need some form of these, maybe they need to be different. Uh, but modifying them or knocking them off the books by the SEC requires almost this effort, you know, is basically the same effort as a new rulemaking, right? You've got to do a uh, proposal, you got to have a comment, you got to uh, deal with it, and I just don't know if they're, you know, and I've said this, you know, in a couple of public forums. I'm just not sure there's enough real opposition, or you know, re- that that really is what people want done. But maybe.
0: Yeah. Um How about the proposed derivatives rule? Do you think that'll be streamlined and ever go final?
1: Uh, yeah, great question. Obviously, you know, I was not a supporter of the derivatives rule as it came out. I think that. Um, you know, there there are two strands. I think a lot of people would just prefer that it not go forward. There is another school of thought that says, look, let's try to get something, you know, reasonable, uh, and see if we can get it, you know, get something done. Um I I don't know. I don't know if it will move forward. My instinct is probably not. All
0: right. Um anything more on NPORT? Did we
1: cover that pretty no. well? Any- no, I think we've covered that well. Plus you know, it's radio. It's a form. It's not that exciting. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> it reminds me of when Corp, when the Corp Finance Division implemented financial data schedules. <laughs> it's like ah. Yeah. <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah, I, I did that. Um, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. All right. So we'll we'll leave that and go on to. Um, we have a couple questions from listeners. Actually, we've got six or so questions here from listeners. I know we're kind of running out of time here a little bit, but we'll we'll see. Um, do you mind taking questions from listeners? Yeah. Sure. Um, like. One of them is, um, how do you think a Republican administration impacts the SEC regulatory environment? That's a neat
1: well, question. Well, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is obviously the pace has slowed. You know, I mean, the SEC, like the, I mean, the Obama administration set a record almost every year for the number of rules and the number of pages, at, you know, added to the Federal Register. And, um, and, look, just slowing that down, right, you know, has obviously helped growth tremendously in 2017, um, which benefits all Americans. Um, I think you've seen that same slowdown at the commission, right, just not cranking out rules all the time, which which generally is good for everybody because rules cost money. Um, you know, these the uh, last administration had more $100 million rules than anyone else. Um, and so, um, you know, I think it's – also slowed down at the SEC. I think that's really good for our economy. I think they'll just be more selective and and really you know think hard. And clearly, one they've got right on their you know schedule. I mean, it's just something that's staring them in the face. Are these cryptocurrencies and you know all the fever Bitcoin and tokens and every other thing. And you know I've come out and said that I would really like to see a coordinated regulatory view um, on cryptocurrency. We have different views right now from Treasury, IRS, CFTC, and the SEC for different interpretations of cryptocurrency. And I would like to see regulatory consistency um, so that there's a framework and we can decide if these things are, you know, the market can decide if these things are uh, good or bad. But right now we just have a very fragmented regulatory approach and I don't think that really helps anyone.
0: And and a lot of people trying to figure out what like, just from a user standpoint, what is cryptocurrency? Do you mind going through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Like
1: yep. Yeah, absolutely. Two main types, um, you know, in the environment we're dealing with right now. Um, you're looking at, you know, things that literally are currencies, trying to be currencies. So that would be Bitcoin, Ethereum, some of those, where you're, you're trying to say, look, we'll, you know, we'll pay with this item, right? And, and that's something that uh, Treasury, you know, under its, uh, anti-money laundering, you know, rules and so forth has said is a currency and needs to have money transfer licenses and, you know, people who deal with it, that kind of stuff. You then have tokens, which are um, coins as well, but they're coins that you buy with Bitcoin or with Ethereum. So they are sort of, uh, you know, more like a product, let's say, than a a currency. Uh, And the coins, you know, so you have seen um, a variety of regulatory approaches to the two different things, I guess. You know, um, Treasury, as I mentioned, has said that, you know, the the currencies are currencies, potentially uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. But the tokens, everyone's having a hard time kind of figuring out what's what. Um, The SEC has issued a report saying that a certain one token was a security uh, and so it shouldn't have been sold uh, without registration. Um, The Commodities Futures Trading Commission has identified um, certain cryptocurrencies as commodities and is allowing futures trading on those. Uh, And then just to round out the picture, the IRS has declared these things property uh, as opposed to currency or securities or commodities. So we have a, a big gulf around about what's what in this area and I I would really like to see regulators come together and really think it through about what's what in this space. Um, the, uh, you know, I, And uh, Chairman Clayton and Chairman Giancarlo from the CFTC just wrote a joint op-ed, I think actually earlier this week or the end of last week, kind of talking about the same thing, that they needed a coordinated approach to um, regulation. So hopefully that's where we'll end up.
0: I think maybe I'll post that with this show so people can see it. Oh
1: sure, um, sure. Yeah,
0: that okay. I'll do that. Um, all right, this one's coming from me, and um, I would I would love to know about you know how, you know how the internet is so instant, it's effective, it commun- you know it helps communicate with investors and the public and all this stuff. But um, I'm noticing from a social media standpoint of standpoint that um, a lot of the Financial services firms trying to use the social media sort of get a little bit handcuffed um, in in their ability to use it. Do you think that that will ever let up a little bit, or do you think it, it's the way it's supposed to be? Because um, I know I would love to see likes and shares, but I don't know the full probably implications of that. Um, do you have any thoughts on that at all?
1: So yeah, absolutely. I you know I mean look you're, you know it's I uh, we are you know. We are struggling with rules. What I would say is 33 Act, 34 Act, and the 240 Acts. So that's the Securities Act that allows public companies, 34 Act allows brokers and exchanges, um, 40 Act for uh, mutual funds, and Advisors Act in 1940 for investment advisors. take it by the dates on those laws. You know, they're all in their 80s, right? And those laws did not contemplate these newfangled things called computers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And so we, you know, I think the, the securities laws are struggling to keep up. Um, they don't, as you mentioned, likes and shares and so forth. Some people are worried our advertising. And so, you know, there's a whole um, kind of, you know, confusion around that That's the, and, you know, different thoughts that have come up and so forth. And there's been some guidance from the SEC. So there's – but I believe that, like anything, regulators typically – it's, you know, regulators typically – things develop, right? And and they're not developing in government. They're developing in the private world. And so regulators usually start to observe those and start to figure them out. And I think it'll take longer than everyone wants, but in the end there will be interpretations and guidance that, that help people with how to use social media in the securities business.
0: Got it. Um, okay, so this one is another question from a listener, and they um, they asked the enforcement This sounds like a statement, but then with a question. So the enforcement division will make a concerted effort to charge individuals. Um, Do you think this will effectively deter wrongdoing by sending a strong message, stripping wrongdoers of ill-gotten gains, and barring serious bad actors and recidivists from the securities markets?
1: So, you know, we've got a big debate raging here, you know, from the end of the crisis through now about charging individuals versus charging entities. Um, You know, I think if you look through, I, I think what that question is referring to is the commission saying, look, we're more focused on retail and, and, you know, the sort of things that affect individuals and we're going to get after that and so forth. And um, I think that what you always find, look, the commission charges lots of individuals with misconduct. I I could get you all sorts of uh, cases that I use in my class, (laughs) you know, that involve individuals. Um, There was post-crisis, you know, a, a thought that the SEC should have charged more individuals that, proved, you know, to be difficult for the commission, um, you know, to really establish enough, um, you know, ability to do that. And so I think it's always going to be a tension, you know, are you charging individuals, are you charging a firm? Um, And, you know, I I, I don't know if there's going to be any big sea change in that.
0: Okay. Um, Another one, you played a key role in money market fund reforms. Do you anticipate a rollback in those reforms?
1: So there is a bill uh, poking around Congress uh, that would roll back, you know, some of the things that uh, the Commission did. I think that um, you know we shall see. I haven't heard much about that, um, you know, recently. Um, you know, and think about money market fund reform. It was a compromise, um, and as I always say, I didn't have a vote. I had to get three votes uh, from commissioners. You know, the SEC is five people; three of them have to. It's the Securities Exchange Commission, right? Five commissioners, including the chair. Three of them, three of the five, have to vote for something to make it um, so. And in the case of money market mutual fund reform, it was one Democrat, one Republican, and one independent for. And it was one Republican and one Democrat against. So I always joked that we apparently found a compromise because we had people, you know, it split the Democrats, it split the Republicans. So – it was a close run thing. It's a compromise. It was trying to address uh, issues in the crisis with money market mutual funds. Um, but I could also see people saying, "Look, we wanna you know uh, look at different policy options. So we'll see. Um, it uh, I think right now it seems quiet, but but you don't know.
0: So okay. Let's go to Harvard Law for a little bit here. We'll take a break from all the questions, <laughs> and, mm. and we get to keep asking you questions though. But <laughs> um, tell us what you do at Harvard Law. That um, tell us what you teach. And there's a phrase I was trying to find it while you were talking. It was like there's a there's a phrase you've coined too, and I I cannot find something like I want to say compliance calculus or something oh, like that. I can't compli- Yeah, what it is. Uh, um,
1: that's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Could
0: you talk um, about Harvard?
1: Yep. Yep. So, um, uh, again, uh, uh, was sitting with the dean of – got to know the dean of Harvard Law School at that time before Martha Minow. was Elena Kagan, currently, obviously, an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and Dean Kagan and I, um, you know, talked a lot about possible – uh, classes or or things that students might want to learn. Uh, and, you know, since I was in the private funds business at that time, the hedge funds business, and have remained in the private funds area private funds are very interesting to law students and business school students at Harvard um, because, you know, private funds are huge employers uh, in New York and San Francisco and elsewhere. And uh, also, you know, private funds own the the statistic is something like, you know, up to 10% of private companies or something, you know, so there's a lot of capital in private equity and and hedge funds and they're, you know, they're investing that capital in America. And so people are very interested in those topics. So the ultimately I uh, ended up, starting the first class uh, at the law school in investment management uh, law. So taught, you know, how do you, and generally private uh, fund law that I do talk about money market mutual funds because of what we were just talking about. But so it's really a private funds class, um, you know, talking about how you form a private fund and how it works and the various uh, issues around it. And, and, you know, how the biggest thing being, how all the law intersects uh, in private funds because there are the statutes I mentioned, the securities law statutes, but you've got tax law and ERISA and, um, you know, all sorts of statutes and laws that kind of circulate around a private fund business uh, Manage, you know, the advisor and the fund. So it's really a class about all those kind of things and trying to pull it all together. Um, I've been fortunate to have, you know, uh, I usually have the maximum up there, 50 students in a class, and uh, it's just great fun to – try to explain this industry and what we do in investment management um, to folks who don't know that much about it uh, and really, you know, kind of be able to package it, you know, getting that down to three hours a week for 12 weeks so 36 hours um, is tough. uh, Trying to encapsulate everything that goes into uh, investment management law. So it's great. I feel like it's a wonderful way to think again about everything we're doing in the, in the business, but also a way to pass it on to, to young lawyers if they might, and and business, I get business school cross registration folks as well and see if that's something they might be interested in in their careers. There's only a few uh, classes in investment management law around the country. uh, I think maybe two or three or four. So um, it's a great opportunity for the students to get exposed to it. Um, Compliance calculus is uh, a term that I coined having to do with kind of, um, you know, every decision in complying with law as a, investment advisor or really anyone, right, is how much resources are you putting into compliance for what result, right? So um, you could spend a huge amount of resources and never have one little flaw in your compliance program, right, with law. You could spend perhaps a little less and maybe you're willing to have a couple issues but nothing serious, Right. Or, unfortunately, there are people who don't spend much at all, and then they end up with serious issues, right? So there's just that level of trying to, you know, as with any human activity, what kind of capital are you going to allocate to it, uh, looking for what result. So it's it's really trying to make that balance. And, and you know, um, firms have different, you know, firms end up with different places with that. So it's kind of a fun concept to, to think about. Yeah.
0: That's a, that's a great way to think about that, too, because... Those compliance programs are very important. Um, do you? Okay, so I don't want to leave without one more question, and then we'll then we'll go. Um, could you tell us about Kirkland and Ellis and your role there? Sure.
1: Um, yeah. Yep. Uh, Kirkland and Ellis, um, you know, obviously historically Chicago firm, um, and uh, but current, but now has a very significant presence in New York, and uh, I'm in the New York office. Uh, which across the firm, we have the largest investment funds group in the world. We have 280 lawyers, I think we say, working on investment funds. And, and my sub part of that, which is funds regulatory issues and solving, you know, problems. Uh, and so um, it's tremendous platform for me with my background in both being director of investment management at the SEC and having been a partner in an investment manager, um, it's a place where I can really see such a breadth of um, practice and help so many clients. And uh, it's been super enjoyable, tremendous group of people. Uh, great partners, wonderful clients. Uh, so uh, it's been a great two years. Today happens to be my second anniversary of uh, joining the firm, You know, two years to the day. Uh, and um, it's just been tremendous uh, getting to know my partners and working with them. So huge opportunity and, and great fun.
0: Awesome. Happy anniversary. I wish I had like an applause button or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Balloons will go off. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, now this, this goes back over to the best ever use side of things, and then we'll go one more thing. Um, you are a very high achieving, very brilliant person, and I am very curious just personally if you would share with me and our audience how you go about setting your goals. Um, if you set goals, do you write them down? Do you talk about them with anybody? How, how do you set goals?
1: That's a great question. Um, I definitely think about goals quite a bit, um, particularly, you know, working with a big team of folks and thinking about, you know, where are we trying to head this? We have a wonderful head of our group as well, and he and I, um, you know, look at goals for the group. Um, and then personally, um, I certainly think about goals. I And I don't typically write them down, but I I certainly have in my head. And then actually when I come to certain junctures, it's interesting you bring this up. When I've come to different junctions in my career, that's when I've usually written them down. So thinking, you know, are you going to go left here or go right, um, you know, at the fork? um, I have used that as times where I've written down, well, okay, if you go and do this, you know, here are the pros, here are the cons. If you go do something else, here are the pros and cons of that. So um, I feel like, what I always think about and I ask candidates and I always ask just folks on the team, you know, where do you want to be in five years? Right. And, you know, use that uh, conversation to think, all right, well, if you want to be here, you know, and or you want to be in such and such a position, what do you have to do to get there? You know, what do, how are we going to get from here to there and how can I help you get from here to there? So that's an exercise that I use as well.
0: Thank you for that. All right. We're out of time. And um, I just, Thank you. Is there anything else that I didn't ask that you think we need to to cover before we go on our educational (laughs) radio show here? You gave us a class. Thank you for that. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, it was great fun. I mean, I think, um, you know, one thing that I always just maybe end with is um, I really feel like it's so important to kind of keep flexible and keep open to opportunities and think about broad opportunities. Uh, think broadly about opportunities, be open to them. I feel like, um, all the best things that have happened to me in my career have been sort of thinking about different paths and what, you know, and being open to different things and talking to people and just keeping an open mind, keeping flexible, having a broad range of experience and kind of seeing where, where it all leads.
0: That's awesome. What do you think about reaching, reaching to people who are doing what you're already doing, like reaching out to somebody like you and saying how, you know how, how do I go about this? Do you, do you believe in mentors?
1: Absolutely. Um, I met with someone earlier today um, who is, you know, thinking about job opportunities and you know looking for something, and and um, I told her my philosophy. You know, she said, oh, I'm you know I reached out to you. I wasn't sure if you know I should do that or not, and I said, look. My view in the government, out of the government, all through my career is if anyone wants to meet with me, I'll meet with them. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, I would, if people are thinking about trying to get into the business, get back in the business, make moves in the business, um, I'm always open to chat with people because I think that's, you know, just tremendously valuable for for everybody. So uh, absolutely, I, you know, I, I think it's critical.
0: Great. All right. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you. And um, I thank you for being my first very brave guest on the Compliance 4 podcast. (laughs) I appreciate your time, your energy, your thoughts. It's been really wonderful having you.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Um, And I hope people enjoyed the broadcast.
0: All right. Thank you, guys, everybody, so much for listening. Thank you for downloading and sharing the show in social media. Um, We're on Twitter. I'm going to put those links With the show, uh, we're on LinkedIn, so you can share the show. You just simply copy the link and share it. And I appreciate everybody um, for listening. And everybody, that was Norm Champ. Isn't that awesome? For almost a full hour. What a treat. Um, His websites are going public, the book. His book is Going Public called Going Public, um, My Adventures Inside the SEC and How to Prevent the Next Devastating Crisis is available on Amazon. It's available on goingpublicthebook.com or wherever books are sold. You can also go to normchamp.com. And I thank you all so much for listening. We are going to be back with our second Compliance for podcast on February 15th with Dave Carson from Ultimus. So uh, we're very excited to welcome him. And um, thank you again to Norm Champ, and thank you all so much for listening. And we're going to say goodbye, and we'll see you on February 15th. Thank you all. Thanks for listening and sharing the Compliance 4 radio show. Visit us at Compliance4.com to join your peers and our experts in our growing community.